Good morning, everyone. How are you doing? It's nice to see uh, the sun come out yesterday, wasn't it? Wow, it's been so long. Okay. It's a lovely time of uh, year, Easter, isn't it, when we can remember all that Jesus did. And of course, for us, we know as Christians, it's Easter day every day. What Jesus did for us is every day. But it's nice to remember all the events. Great. So, let's make a start. So, our current series with Easter, we're looking at um, characters in the Easter story. And so far, we've looked at um, Jesus' friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Mary, Jesus' mother, and um, Peter last week. Can you help me put this up a little bit, Matt? Thanks. And, um, oop, down a tiny bit. <laughs> That's perfect. Thank you. Is it a bit tighter than before? Thank you. There we are. So it helps me to just see the notes easily and be able to see your lovely faces as well. So that's who we've done so far. So today, we're going to be looking at Pontius Pilate. Now, I'm not sure if we've done Pontius Pilate before, as in a character, all on his own. But today, we're going to look at Pontius Pilate. So who was Pilate? That's what we're going to look at first. Who was he? So remember at this time, when we're looking at the Easter story, that the Jews were under Roman occupation. And although they had their own king, Herod, he was only Herod of, he was only like a ruler, a client ruler of a quarter of the kingdom. And at this time, it was of Galilee and Perea. And it was really the Romans who carried the power. And Pilate was the Roman prefect or the governor. And he was the fifth Roman prefect or governor, and he was the governor over Judea between the period of 26 and 36 AD. Now, for a governor, that was quite a long rule, and it possibly would have been longer if it wasn't a little bit of an incident that got him called back to Rome, but we'll look at that after. So Pilate was the Roman governor both during Jesus and John the Baptist's lifetimes. Now, his Latin name in full, Pontius Pilate, is actually Marcus Pontius Pilatus, I don't think he, he invented Pilates, but um, my daughter did send me a little clip when I said I'm preparing on Pilate, and sent me a clip of someone doing Pilates. It looked very interesting. So Pontius Pilate, now he was accountable to the Roman emperor Caesar Tiberius, who was stationed in Rome, and this was his boss. And anything that he did in the kingdom carried its way back to the boss, so he wanted to make a good impression. He succeeded a guy called Valerius Gratus in AD 26. And for Pilate, he had greater authority than the governors who had come before him. They'd had administration and finance, but now he had been given the power to be the judge overall, the judge of life or death in the area. So he had more authority than the ones who'd gone before him. Now, Pilate lived in the governor's residence. Now, the governor's residence was Herod's palace. Now, this is going back a few Herods. This is Herod the Great at the time of when Jesus was a baby. Do you remember Herod the Great? He built beautiful palaces. He built these like amazing aqueducts to bring uh, fresh water into Caesarea. So he built himself a beautiful palace like on the beach, and he made this big harbor in Caesarea. It was a luxurious, beautiful palace. But after he died, the Romans took over, and for about 500 years, the Roman governors moved into Herod the Great's old palace. So he even made himself a freshwater swimming pool that was almost the size of an Olympic pool. 
This was Herod the Great. He really was Herod the Great. He had lots of building projects and everything. So the Romans kind of inherited this palatial governor's residence in Caesarea that was the capital of Judea at the time. So when Pilate became governor, he moved into this beautiful palace in Caesarea. Now, he kept with him at Herod the Great's old palace about 3,000 soldiers. And these soldiers were with him, but every now and then they would go up to Jerusalem for the numerous feasts of the Jewish people, because that was the time in Jerusalem where lots of visitors would come in and strangers, and there was a chance of there being riots or rebellions. And so um, Pontius Pilate would go up to Jerusalem, and he would stay there and take the 3,000 soldiers with him to subdue the area if anything kicked off. So it's interesting that Luke... Remember, Luke is a doctor and a historian when we looked at a series on Luke some time ago. And when he talks about everything that happens with Jesus, he likes to place his gospel in the historical context. So if we look at Luke 3, 1 to 2, this is Luke introducing the historical context of um, when John the Baptist started. It says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, and tetrarch means a quarter. He was looking after a quarter um, of the place, which was Galilee. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, that is the Baptist, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Now, why is this important that Luke says this? Because Luke is flagging up all the main characters that are going to take part in the Easter story. So you see, in this little introduction with Luke, he mentions Pontius Pilate, Herod. This is Herod Antipas. Now, he was a son of Herod the Great. He was the third ruler after Herod the Great, the one who had John uh, beheaded, and Caiaphas. And these are all prominent figures in the Easter story. And so he puts them in there, and we're about to see this play unfold involving all these figures. So we know that Pilate was a real historical figure because he's mentioned in early historical accounts outside of the Bible. And there are various sources, and they record him as a strict, headstrong, authoritarian ruler. What Pilate wants, Pilate gets. So he was both rational and practical, and they're often going way too far and heavy-handed and using his power in like a heavy-handed way. Some records paint him as arrogant and cruel, others as inflexible, merciless, and obstinate. And he was certainly insensitive to the Jews. So here he is as a Roman governor, the occupying force, having oversee a religious group of people that he, his sensibilities are way far away from that. And so he often makes a mishap in not understanding the people he's governing. He often violated their customs, causing uproar with both the Jews and the Samaritans. He, like, was the reigning force trampling on their laws with insensitivity. And he stirred them up often to protesting. On one occasion, he allowed um, images of the emperor Tiberius into Jerusalem. And I think he was trying to score points with Tiberius, that this would go back to Tiberius. You know, he had um, images made that were carried through Jerusalem and in Herod's palace as well. But in, and he had coins made, and the coins, I mean, they, they look pretty to us, but these were um, religious symbols of his pagan gods on the coins. And this stirred up the Jews because they weren't allowed graven images in Jerusalem. And so one time, uh, the Jewish historian uh, Flavius Josephus, he records a time when a great crowd traveled 
all the way to Pilate's palace in Caesarea. They were so offended with these images in Jerusalem. And they went there to protest the images, and they went to his palace, and they lay on the floor prostrate, the whole crowd, for five days to um, you know, protest about the images. Now, Pilate just threatened to put them all to death, but when they would happily die for this, he had like really miscalculated how strong their faith to God meant and their religion, and he knew he just couldn't wipe them all out, so he relented and took the images away. And it's interesting how we see him often bowing to public opinion because he doesn't want the news of a riot getting back to his boss. Another time, Josephus records that Pilate used funds from the temple treasury to build an aqueduct into Jerusalem. Obviously, this was offensive. They shouldn't be using the money for that. But for him, he thought, well, the Jews are benefiting from it. And this sparked a massive protest. But on this occasion, rather than backing down, Pilate sent plainclothes soldiers into the crowd. And when the protest um, went into an uproar, the plainclothes soldiers just clubbed many protesters to death. So he was a typical Roman ruler there in the time of Jesus. We see he was brash, insensitive, using his power, causing offense, sometimes backing down in light of mass protest. But I think most of the reason for that was not wanting a bad report to go back to the emperor Tiberius. So what's interesting is, after the time of the crucifixion, Pilate disappears from history after his rule. And according to Josephus and the Roman historian Tacitus, Pilate was sent to Rome to answer to Tiberius over a bit of a problem in Samaria. So in Samaria, there'd been a little bit of an uprising. It was small, but Pilate had overthought it, thought it was more than it was, and used excessive force against um, the Samaritans. And he was called back to Rome to answer in a trial for using um, too much force, for being oppressive, and for executing men without trial. But, but history tells us that he was going back to Rome. He was released of his office. He was going back to Rome. But while he was on the journey, Caesar Tiberius died. And when he arrived in Rome, Caligula had taken over. If you know your history, you know that's not good news for anyone. And that's the last we hear of Pilate. There are many rumors, but that's the last we hear uh, on the historical record of what happened to him. Now, more recently, in 1961, there was a group of um, Italian archaeologists, and they were on a dig in Caesarea. And they unearthed, there was a, an old theater, and there was a stepping stone into the theater. And when they pulled this stone up, they found it was actually an inscription to a previous resident of, Pi of Pilate's, and his name is inscribed on it. In fact, if you go on Google Maps to Caesarea today, you can see the actual authentic one is in the Jewish Museum, but there is actually one on the harbor there. So if you type into Google Earth uh, Herod's Palace, you can actually see a replica of it there in uh, Caesarea. And they found this fragment of stone, and it's um, carved into it, Pontius Pilate, Prefect of Judea. And there's actual like, hard evidence of him being there. And more recently, in November 2018, in a journal called the Israel Exploration Journal, sign up now, they found this discovery that when they did an excavation in Herodium, they found a copper ring, and the copper ring was engraved with Pilate's name. Amazing, 2,000-year-old copper alloy ring. But apart from these things, 
Pilate vanishes from history, but before he did, he certainly made his mark. So that's his history. We're going to look at now Pilate's part to play in the Easter story. Now, he was infamous for the role that he played, and the four Gospels record all different parts of what happened, and I've piece them together to try and make an order of what happened on that fateful day when Jesus came before Pilate. So I'm going to read it now from the scripture, and I'm just going to ask the Lord to make it come alive for us, for there's something powerful in the written word of God. And so I've pieced together Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John into, I'm sure if there was an expert, they might say one bit slightly, uh, Matthew, just close your ears, one bit slightly around the wrong way, but I've tried my best, but I think you'll enjoy it. So let's just pray. Lord, we thank you for all that you did for us. And we ask that you will open our hearts now to your word, that you will speak to us through your word of the events that involve you. Speak to us now by your spirit. Amen. Okay, here we go. We start in Matthew 26, verse 3. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas, and they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, unless there be an uproar among the people. But luckily for them, when they were praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas portrayed Jesus for silver coins. And the soldiers arrived in Gethsemane. And in Matthew 26, it records, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. So alone, Jesus gets taken to the Sanhedrin at night. We know from last week, Peter was following at a distance, but everyone else had left. In Matthew 26, and those who laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they could not find anything. Many testified falsely against him, but none of their statements agreed. Again, the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. You can see that Pilate didn't want to get involved in this local religious dispute, especially at a time of a feast. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, Jesus answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis of charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee, and now he's come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. 
When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time for the feast. So we see Pilate passes the buck back to Herod. Luke 23, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased. For a long time, he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped him to seem to, to perform some kind of sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. So Jesus is brought back to Pilate. And they began to accuse him again, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. And you see how they're trying to catch him out because he's very sensitive to the boss, Caesar. And he claims to be Messiah, a king. Pilate takes Jesus inside to talk to him. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered him, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. He said to him, you brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence, and I found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he has sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. So then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you now to let you know that I find no basis for charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him, for he knew that they'd handed him over because of envy. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said. Don't you realize 
I have power either to free you or to crucify you. Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about noon. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Then the governor said, why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather than an uproar was rising, he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their command. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Afterwards, when it was all over, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body, and Pilate said yes, and Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus in his own tomb. The chief priests go to Pilate and request a guard. Pilate says, go ahead, you arrange it. Pilate that day is the only one, as the judge of Judea, with the authority to let him go or to impose a death sentence on Jesus. He caves to pressure and lets the crowds have their way. Josephus records Pilate's notorious role in agreeing to the execution of Jesus, an innocent man on a Roman cross. And sometime after this, not long after, Pilate is recalled to Rome over the issue of Samaria and is never heard of again. That is powerful, isn't it? When I think of what Jesus went through for us, I'm just astonished, really. Okay, four thoughts to finish off. So we know who Pilate is. We see his role in the execution of Jesus. And I'm just going to bring out four thoughts from this story. The first thought that really... <laughs> seems so clear to me is this whole bowl of water. So we've got this bowl of water that Pilate calls for. And he calls for a bowl of water and he dips his hands in it and publicly, as like a public symbol, a ceremony, he washes his hands as if that is going to do anything. But he washes his hands saying, I'm out. I'm opting out. No responsibility here. He had the responsibility. But in this sign, he showed everyone he was opting out. 
When Pilate saw he was getting nowhere in Matthew 27, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. And I want to contrast that with another bowl of water that just the night before, Jesus was having the Passover meal with his disciples and he took off his outer robes and he went and got a bowl of water. And this bowl of water, he used it to wash their feet. He washed their feet as a sign. He wrapped a towel around his waist. It says in John 13, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel wrapped around him. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now when Jesus takes this bowl of water, it's a whole different demonstration. He takes this bowl of water to demonstrate sacrifice and love and his deep care for his disciples and to demonstrate I, the Lord of all, I'm going to submit my life even to death for your sake because I love you. And it was a sign of love, such incredible, incredible love and a deep sacrifice. And he said, see as I do this, you do it for one another, how we're meant to serve one another like Jesus. And for me, when I read this story just the night before, there is a bowl of love and service And then the next day, there is this bowl of washing his hands and having nothing to do with it. There's like a bowl of opting in, all in, completely all in, even to death, and a bowl of opting out. And it was a really powerful symbol to me. And I feel it's like we have a choice in life as well to copy Pilate or copy Jesus. The washing the hands or washing the feet, powerful symbols of completely opting in. Jesus, you gave your life to me. Count me in. Wash my feet too. Let me serve others. Or the washing, the opting out. I think as well with our baptisms coming up, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've like opted in, and you're a follower of Jesus, you haven't been baptized yet, get baptized. Come and Come into the waters of baptism. It's a step of obedience. It's a step of Jesus, I am all in. In the New Testament, you see people believed and were baptized. There wasn't this long gap uh, between believing and then getting baptized years or months or you know, years and years later. But there is a believe and be baptized. It's a symbol in water of our dying with Jesus and rising in. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't been baptized yet, come and speak to me or one of the elders after and, and do your opting in all the way. That's a powerful thing, the water, isn't it? Two bowls, so close together, opting in and opting out. The second thing that struck me was Pilate's wife. Now, her name was Claudia Procula. She says, don't have anything to do with this innocent man. I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Now, it's interesting that it's a dream today. Was it like a daydream? Was it a vision? It wasn't a dream in the night, it was a dream in the day. Now she's either having a nap in the day or some kind of vision, warning, um, and that she goes, she sends this message to her husband and he's up there, you know, ruling in front of everyone, somehow gets this little message uh, not to have anything to do with Jesus. And 
Rather than like standing up for him and freeing him, he abdicates all responsibility but stays true to her warning. It made me think about dreams, prophecies, warnings. You know, when we read our Bible, that, you know, there's a line, you know, this, this line is following Jesus. This is a, um, a load of behaviors and attitudes that are consistent with our following of Jesus. And then there's the crossing the line of behaviors, attitudes, ways of living that are not part of following Jesus. We know these things and they're, they're like, warnings that things will go well with us when we obey Jesus and his ways because he knows how we work best and what's good for us. And I just wanted to encourage us this morning to make sure that we listen to the Lord in our life and we don't, you know, blunder on or blunder ahead. But Pilate was stopped for a moment by this warning from his wife. And in Psalm 119, it says, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light to my path. When we're making decisions, when we uh, you know, living out our life, to live it out by the word of God, which will show us the way like a lamp. Or in Proverbs 3, I love this verse here. It says, trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. And it's saying in all our life, submit our life to Jesus. As we're walking with Jesus and submit our life to him, he will direct our paths. And just to encourage us again, if we're if we're making big life decisions that affect us or affect others, to ask a wise leader within the church, a wise friend, uh, to seek counsel on it, and to, and to trust the Holy Spirit in us. You know, we might be in a, in a moment in life that, that we just say, Lord, is this right? Lord, should I do this? Should I say that? And we just listen to the Holy Spirit's guidance in our life. Okay, number three is when Pilate says, what is truth? And I wonder, how much did Pilate or his wife know about Jesus before? Surely they must have heard about the multitudes and the miracles. And how much did they know about him? And now Pilate has this face-to-face conversation with Jesus. And when Jesus talks about a kingdom from another place, Pilate is like, what is truth? And how deep did that question go? I don't know. But at this time in our society, there is that question. People are asking, what is truth? Especially post-COVID. You know, as I speak to like people who run um, hotels or other agencies or hairdressers, they can't get people back to work after COVID. People are saying, I don't want to do those hours for little pay. I'm not coming back. Recruitment has been hard. There's been a shift in people's thinking since COVID, but also that shift has been an openness to finding out about Jesus. And recently, the Bible Society did research across the UK and specifically in Wales, and the Talking Jesus survey was also updated as well. And interesting, we don't have time to go through like all their statistics, but what Matthew shared at Small Groups Together, if you, di- you didn't happen to catch Small Groups Together, you can go back online and uh, you know, to the links for your small group leader and watch it where Matthew did it in more detail. But it's interesting there that through the... Um, Talking Jesus survey and what Patrick Dixon had been sharing, that people said, people who don't know Jesus, those who'd had a conversation with a friend about Jesus, they were asked, how did you feel in that conversation? Were you uncomfortable? Did you enjoy it? How did that feel for you? And 75% said, I felt comfortable with that conversation. 75%. 
So when we share our faith, or something that's happened, or something that we did in church, 75% of the response is people saying, I was comfortable with that conversation, and I would like to have heard more. And then 36% of those people said, after that conversation, 36% said, I feel open to an experience or an encounter with Jesus. 36%, and that has risen since the last survey. So people are even more open than before to say, I'm open to an experience of Jesus and to an encounter with him. And more than that, one in five of those who'd been shared with said, if I had been invited by that person to church there and then, I'd have said yes. I want to come. I want to find out. So with our Alpha that's coming up, April the 20th, it's like an amazing time right now where there is openness and like Matthew was sharing at small groups together, that we like share those invitations like the sower sowing the seed. When the sower sowed the seed, it landed on all different types of ground, some responsive and some not. But our role is just to sow the seed and make the invite. So for us to know at this season, just like Pilate was asking, what is truth? People right now are open to a sharing or an invitation to come along. So there's invites at the back. Please take a whole wad of them, and in the next couple of weeks, just, just share them anywhere you like, and let's see people who may encounter the love and forgiveness of Jesus like we have, though we don't keep that to ourselves, but we share it. And the last point here that I've noticed in this story is that Jesus is in control. Jesus is in control. In John 19, when Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you. And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And Jesus, he had the power at any moment. He could have called angels down to free him. He could have walked off. When I see what he went through, not just the cross, but everything up to that point, staying silent for us. The beatings, the slappings, the flogging, the abuse, the humiliation. And Jesus chose to stay quiet through all of that. He didn't want to interrupt the momentum that would take him to the cross. So Pilate says, I have the power, don't you realize? I could free you or crucify you. But earlier when it says that Jesus set his face to the cross, he set his face to Jerusalem, he knew what was going to happen when he was in the garden and he prayed, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours. And there was no other way. Jesus was sinless and he had to go all the way to the cross to die for us, to die for our sins. He was the only one that could do it. And so he kept his mouth closed out of love for you and love for me. Out of that great love, he said nothing. He endured that abuse and the false trial being dragged here, dragged there, and finally taken to a cross. And why did he do that? It wasn't in Pilate's power. It was in Jesus' power. He would go to the cross to die for us. It's just astonishing love that he would do that. And today, let's receive that love. We, we know that it's true and we've accepted it, but let's just for a moment pause once again and feel the love of Jesus that did that for you, for each and every one of us. He didn't interrupt the momentum that took him to that Roman cross so that he could die for us. It's astonishing. So for us to know that Jesus is in control, 
however desperate something looks, however difficult it is, whatever season you're in right now, Jesus is in control. And I love in Psalm 103 where it says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, above every throne. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. And when Pilate says, you are a king then, and Jesus says, yes, but not of this world. Jesus is the king over everything, the supreme power. Now, as you and I, we're like approaching Easter Day next Sunday. We're approaching Easter. I feel like we're looking up to the cross. We're looking up to what Jesus did for us and remembering and appreciating all that he did because he loved And we remember that deep sacrifice that Jesus made, willing to go to the cross in our place to make us right with God. But then after that terrible day comes Easter Sunday, where the joy of Easter day, the empty tomb, the news that he has risen again, the the confusion and celebration among the first disciples, the despair, and then the celebration that Jesus is alive, is amazing. And in Acts 2, it says this, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. I love that. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Jesus has risen again. He is Lord of all, and he is here to free every single one of us And if you've never yet given your life to Jesus or you're watching online and you're like, gosh, I never really realized the kind of Jesus died on the cross for me, what that meant, then we're going to pray together now. And if you've never taken that step to pray to give your life to Jesus, the no longer the opting out, but the absolutely opting in. Should we pray together? And if you want to give your life to Jesus, and just pray this prayer with me. And if you pray it sincerely, God will come and forgive you your sins. He will be with you through your life now and give you a place in eternity when you die. Lord Jesus, I thank you for loving me. Loving me so greatly that you went all the way to the cross for me. I ask that you will forgive me for all the things I've done wrong. Forgive me my sins, Lord. And I turn to you. I turn away from my old life and I turn to you. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. I ask you, Jesus, to walk this life with me. Forgive my sins and make prepare a place for me in heaven for when I die. And Lord, I pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to come on every person who prays this prayer to invite you into their life. You'll seal this by the power of your spirit. They will be born to brand new life in you. And for those of us who maybe known Jesus a long time, let's also just take a moment to pray and give our lives back into his hands. Jesus, when we ponder all that you went through, the false trial, the humiliation. You didn't answer back. You didn't say a word. You went all the way to the cross. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much. Thank you, Lord, that we are forgiven and we have you in our life every day. 
And Jesus, we pray for this Alpha coming up now, and that you will bring in many people who will discover you and meet you and know the freedom of sins forgiven, the joy of you in their life. Pray you'll bless every invitation as it goes out like a seed into our city, that many people will find you. We love you, Lord, and thank you for all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.